where I play nothing but the hits. Old ones, new ones, independent artists, all genres. Please believe it. Y'all stay tuned right here on Tiger 180 Radio.
may be the most wonderful time of the year, but at the Home Depot, we like to think getting ready for the holidays is a close second. Because the holidays may have two turtle doves, but we have a Milwaukee two-tool combo kit for just $129. And the holidays may have Yule logs and cozy fires, but we have a wise thermostat for $79.98. So stop by the Home Depot and save on everything you need to get your home holiday ready. And enjoy the pre-holiday season almost as much as you enjoy the holidays themselves. The Home Depot. How doers get more done. How's everybody doing? It's Friday, 1.29 p.m. Southern California is nice and warm today in the 80s. It's October the 29th, 2021. Are you ready for your trick-or-treaters? Ours will be out on Sunday night. Or before. are dedicated to the safety of our speakers, performers, staff, and audience. And so we thank all of you. How's everybody doing? And we have home improvements going on. So you'll hear that in the background from time to time. The plumbers, the carpenters. You might even hear me eating chips and doing housework at the same time or cooking while I'm doing the podcast. I'm dedicated to our information and education while we have a life at the same time. Coming up next will be Gene Slater, author. Okay, Gene Slater with Jay Reich, how realtors conspired to segregate America. He was also on Roland Martin's show. Drop this link into the chat and remind folks again. 
And it's now 5.52 p.m. on the West Coast, Friday evening, October 29th. Just two days away from Halloween. Boo. Boo. Not much to celebrate. There may be some people that will make it happen on Sunday night. A few goblins and ghosts. Okay. The Town Hall Seattle. YouTube channel and a celebration we're waiting for savage love with the irrepressible Dan Savage himself that last event or have the privilege to represent for Gene Slater the commission is authorized by state to borrow money at tax rates and lend that money to developers to build affordable housing and to first-time eligible homeowners. And in the course of the 35 years I represented them, and since they financed tens Let's of thousands... Let's see if we can get it to start from the beginning, because we're going to learn something from Gene Slater. Features exclusive interviews of on affordable housing. His projects have received numerous national awards, and in the aftermath of the financial crisis in 2009, he helped design the program by which the United States Treasury financed homes for 110,000 first-time buyers. Jay Rich is a retired partner of Pacifica Law Group who spent two years as Deputy Chief of Staff at the U.S. Department of Commerce under Secretary Gary Locke. Prior to his time in D.C., his three decades of practice in Seattle focused on affordable housing, education, nonprofit and government finance, as well as public-private partnerships. Slater's book, Freedom to Discriminate, How Realtors Conspired to Segregate Housing and Divide America, is the subject of their discussion tonight. Please join me in welcoming Jay Rich and Gene Slater. Thank you for that gracious invitation. Uh, as indicated, my name is Jay Rich, and I'm a retired attorney who had the privilege to represent the Washington State Housing Finance Commission for over 35 years. Um, the commission is authorized by state to borrow money at tax-exempt rates and lend that money to developers to build affordable housing and to first-time eligible homeowners. And in the course of the 35 years I represented them, and since they finance tens of thousands of units of affordable housing throughout Washington. 
I met Gene Slater about 35 years ago when he was acting as the financial advisor to the commission and helped develop those programs. And as indicated, Gene has played that role uh, and continues to play that role to numerous local and state housing agencies as well as the federal government. But tonight we're going to talk about his book, Freedom to Discriminate, How Realtors Conspired to Segregate Housing and Divide America. It's a hard-hitting and well-researched book that traces the professionalization and racial discrimination um, and political activism of the realtor community, starting in California, but went nationally. Um, the realtors, and we're going to talk about exactly what they did, but over the course of many years, they were instrumental in changing the environment of housing throughout the nation uh, in support of racial segregation. Um, they developed a populist libertarian dogma that true Americans, uh, presumably white and Christian, have fundamental rights in property, not necessarily in the Constitution, but as a result of common law or their own uh, theories. And that guaranteed to them the unfettered freedom to discriminate in the sale of property and to live among those who they chose. Uh, this notion of individual freedom uh, obviously conflicts with the freedom of African Americans, uh, as advocated through the Civil Rights Movement, to enjoy the benefits of property ownership. And in a larger sense, and perhaps a more insidious sense, this ideology, when embraced by conservatives in the Republican Party and in parts of the media, means that a host of so-called, quote, guaranteed individual rights, beyond just owning residential property, for example, to own guns, to discriminate based on religion, to enforce the rights of fetuses, to go to term, to resist vaccination, these rights inevitably undercut the rights of others. In this world, the enjoyment of freedom and fundamental rights is a zero-sum game. Conservatives are the genuine victims, they, they would allege, of an, act, of an aggressive central government seeking to take away these rights of true Americans for the unfair benefit of undeserving individuals. The rhetoric is astutely non-racial, so that as a theoretical matter, every person who, for example, had been allowed to buy property can discriminate at will. But in the real world, this perspective clearly and intentionally ensures the continued advantages of those with historic wealth and power. So there's a lot of nuanced analysis to unpack in this book. So let's start at the beginning. Gene, welcome to Seattle. Thank you very much. Gene, let's start by understanding what motivated you to write this book in the first place. Yeah, in some ways, um, it's how little I knew. Um, that I had pieces of a picture without really understanding the whole thing. And this comes in two, in two dimensions. And the book really... and what we're going to talk about tonight links these two dimensions, which is the history of residential segregation and the creation of this conservative idea of freedom, both of which were invented by the realtors. The realtors, local real estate boards, form national associations, they organized the real estate industry. Um, so in terms of my own background, so I, you know, I started uh, in housing 1970 looking at every abandoned building in the South Bronx and worked on, well, we started this firm in a farmhouse in the Mississippi River, 
20 miles from Xerox machine in Wisconsin, designed a home improvement program for Pittsburgh that fixed up 18,000 of the 72,000 single-family homes. And I worked on those kinds of programs in many places, including Seattle in the early 80s, um, and worked with realtors in South Central Los Angeles, worked on mixed-income housing, worked on sort of all kinds of housing. But one of the things I learned as I studied the story was that everybody in this affordable housing industry is sort of dealing with the consequences and the aftermath of segregation and disinvestment. But very few have any sense of including African-American heads of state housing finance agencies, have any sense, as I've learned and talked about this, of how this actually happened. So that was one part of it. And the second was I was in a graduate human rights seminar at uh, Stanford where um, one of the questions I started asking was, why is it that every extension of civil rights is viewed by, viewed by conservatives as a violation of American freedom, of individual freedom? How did that start? Where did that come from? I knew the realtors had used some of this rhetoric in the 60s, but I didn't understand what about it made it so powerful, where it came from, or where it came from in the history of defending segregation. So it was really, in many ways, what I'm describing is the story I learned and the surprises I learned by putting these two pieces together, because I think when you see them together, you illuminate these two fundamental features of modern America that seem so basic. They're like the Great Plains, right? That we have black and white neighborhoods and, and they're all half Americans view freedom as meeting, you know, what we hear on the news tonight. Um, and so when you start seeing how they're connected, you start seeing these fundamental divides in the country driven by the same idea. And that's what interested me about this. So let's start back at the beginning. Take me back to the beginning of the 20th century. Um, what did housing patterns look like in California and elsewhere in the country? You know, one of the myths that realtors used in promoting segregation was that segregation was natural and normal and historic, that it had always been this way. That's not the case. When you go back to the beginning of the 1900s, everywhere in the country, cities were not segregated. People lived where they could afford. If you were poor, you lived in poor areas, but those were dispersed and mixed as well, racially mixed as well. And if you go to places, um, border cities like uh, Washington, St. Louis, Louisville, um, Baltimore, hundreds of blocks were racially mixed in those cities. Um, in 1904 in Los Angeles, and I tell the story through Los Angeles because Los Angeles and California, because they became the largest real estate board in the country, wound up with half the realtors, shaped so much of the national politics and was the place where this ideology was really brought to fruition and influenced Ronald Reagan. But anyway, in Los Angeles in 1904, a black real estate agent um, proudly you know, talked about how proud blacks were that they lived in many of the best neighborhoods of the city. They had chosen not to segregate themselves. They had many of the best services and infrastructure. And yet, by 1917, another African-American in that city, 13 years later, so not a long time later, said, we've been encircled by walls, the white invisible walls. The whites surrounded us and made it impossible to go beyond these walls. Something dramatic had changed. And this changed before, most of the stories you hear about segregation is, you know, African-Americans coming in the Great Migration to Chicago in 19, you know, during World War I or to Detroit and resistance. It began earlier than that. And it began at the beginning of the 1900s and transformed first 
Los Angeles more than anywhere else, and then the country. And that's sort of the story that'll, you know, sort of walk through. So what's interesting is segregation didn't begin as a, a vast plan or a scheme or this is how we're going to organize ourselves or people have to live in particular, are going to be confined to particular neighborhoods. It began rather as a solution to a, to a classic real estate problem, which was a problem of land development in the early 1900s. There was no zoning. And so when people built subdivisions, and, and you, didn't buy a, you didn't buy homes in a whole subdivision, there was a subdivider who divided it all up and often put out just paper streets, some of which got built in Los Angeles, you know, in this era. There were, ultimately, there would be lots for 7 million lots and a million for a population of a million by 20 years from later. So making a subdivision was like the easiest thing in the world in some ways. Nobody knew what they were getting. So a couple of the members of the early real estate boards, and real estate boards were formed, were founded, let me give that as a little background here, were founded around this era, Los Angeles in 1903, for example, um, were founded by the most established brokers in each city in a situation which later referred to as the Wild West of real estate. There was no licensing. Um, people you know, tried to sell real estate on street corners. They'd go up and solicit you. Um, they'd try and cut a deal, and I'll offer you half the price, or I'll sell on a net basis, which means the lower the price you agree to sell at, the fatter my commission. And so real, real estate people were known as shysters. That was, and here were these most established brokers, very often socially elite people with yachts and uh, racing horses in Los Angeles, decided to try and change that. They would organize themselves in real estate boards that consisted of just a few dozen of the 2,000 people working in real estate in Los Angeles. They would get state licensing. They would put out of business people who violated these rules, and they would dominate the business by creating the multiple listing service, which they thought of real estate boards like a stock exchange, where everybody would have, you know, everybody had a copy of the same um, certificates as to the property, and they would share them. This dominated the industry and let them double commissions um, from like 3% to 5% or 6%. So they be, and they controlled 80% of sales. So that's who real estate boards were. That's, and they later trademarked themselves as realtors. So a couple of the most dynamic of these people, one guy in uh, Berkeley, a Duncan McDuffie, and one in Kansas City, J.C. Nichols, both at around the same time, around 1905, just as these boards were being formed, decided that their approach to subdivisions would be the exact opposite, in the same way that Real estate boards were trying to establish trust if you dealt with them. They would establish trust in their subdivisions. And what they would do is they would create high, they were going to create the highest end subdivisions in the country using the Olmsted brothers who designed Central Park for landscaping, creating, you know, curved streets. Um, and they used, but their concern was they're going to spend a lot of money on infrastructure and buying all this land. Well, that means they have to know what's going to happen when they sell the last lots to make their money five years from now or seven years from now. This is a fundamental problem. You have no zoning. If somebody buys a lot, they can turn it into an apartment house. They can turn it into a brothel. They can turn it into a bar um, or a factory because that's, that's the nature. So they decided they would use something that had been pioneered a few years before called, real estate, called restrictive covenants. Covenants 
that basically limited what an owner could do with a property. And the first of these covenants, the ones that had been done before McDuffie and Nichols, they said you can't build a house, you have to build a house at least of this, at least this size, you have to keep the street trees. They added to this one other covenant, which was nobody can ever live on this property, or for the next 30 years can live on this property, other than a servant who's not Caucasian. And this cost these developers nothing. And it was marketed, it was a marketing tool. It was a way of saying, here's social class. For example, in the Bay Area, they're building the highest end, the most expensive house lots in the Bay Area. Relatively few of the small number of African Americans or Japanese Americans at the time could possibly have afforded this. It wasn't about race per se, necessarily, but it was about social cachet. This idea took off. At first, they found it hard to convince people why should you put a covenant, I mean, why should I put a restriction on my own lot that I'm buying? And people said, this seems un-American. You know, it's sort of, this is, you know, this is against my freedom as an owner. And they said, no, 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 it's not the restrictions on you which matter. It's the restrictions on your neighbors which count. It's really fear of what is going to happen next door. This theme will come up throughout this story. So they did this. Within a year, this idea took off, and took off more in Los Angeles than anywhere else, where high-end subdivisions, Beverly Hills, advertised themselves with permanent deed restrictions um, you know, for Caucasians only. Caucasians meant sort of whatever the developer meant it to, certainly included, certainly excluded African Americans, Japanese, Chinese, Mexican Americans, generally excluded Jews, it excluded Catholics, it excluded Italians. Sort of what, who, who was allowed to be white, to be Caucasian, changed over the years. But this was the sort of fundamental idea. So within a year, it was being used on middle-class subdivisions like Culver City in Los Angeles, and then working-class subdivisions. So by 1910, this is, we're talking like five years, the Los Angeles Housing Commission, predecessor of one of my clients, <laughs> ironically, says in a report, Mexican Americans would be able to find places to live if only every lot wasn't surrounded, you know, wasn't, uh, didn't have one of these covenants on it. What made this even more powerful was realtors then conspired, I think that's the right word, with local officials to require in a whole new city like Glendale, which would eventually have 100,000 people, that nobody, no developer could get approval to build there unless they had such covenants. So you had an entirely white city. And this, that, yeah. that relates to developments yes. where the owner, original owner, subdivides and can impose that when they sell. Right. What about existing housing? So again, and this only took a few years later, realtors who were selling existing homes said, we can use the same marketing tool too. So they circulated petitions in existing neighbors. Pasadena was sort of the classic case of this. And they circulated petitions that you would sign a deed restriction on your own home, and when 75% of the neighbors signed one, it would go into effect. What did that mean? If one, if one of you, or the person you sold your house to 15 years later, ever sold it or rented it, even, to an African-American, all the neighbors could sue. Whoever had bought it would lose their money. And so this, this became known as the covenant plan. This got adopted 
throughout the country. So by the 1920s, we're in a world in which half of the existing homes in the country and the vast majority of new homes are controlled by racial covenants. So what other tools are being used as we move on to, to um, spread uh, this segregation? So for example, tell us about redlining or FHA policy. What other tools are being used and promoted, I assume, by the realtors yeah. to, to intensify this? So remember, not every property was covenanted. Covenants expired a certain time unless they're renewed. Actually, they invented the first homeowners. Where homeowners associations in America come from? They came from these first subdivisions, from J.C. Nichols, to enforce these. Okay. But we're talking by, and I, I, when I, need to, I really need to answer this in terms of the justifications, because to understand how the federal government got involved, how they institutionalized segregation, you have to understand the justifications that realtors used, and that's really the theme that runs through this story. So by 1918, there's a meeting of high-end developers um, a confidential meeting, J.C. Nichols and McDuffie and others from around the country. And they're talking, and Nichols says to the others, you know, I've been approached by some of the top Jewish families in Kansas City, and they're saying, why can't I buy a home in your, in country club estates? And he says, you know, the more I think about it, it seems, by George, you know, this seems so undemocratic, so un-American. How can we set these limits? And the other developers said, are you crazy? Um, and he backed off. He didn't sell to Jews or Catholics for the next 30 years. <coughs> but what it showed was the problem that realtors had. They had no ideology. They had no way of explaining what they were doing other than this is just a tool for marketing homes. So what they decided was they came up very deliberately with an axiom, which they pronounced as being scientific and objective and economic that undesirable human elements, this is the words of the leading appraiser in the country, undesirable human elements depreciate property values. Minority moving into a white neighborhood is going to lower property values, and they said, by 50%. Every textbook in the country, and it was the realtors who sponsored and published the textbooks, every appraisal manual for the next 25 years stated this as an objective fact. The Portland Real Estate Board in 1920 says, not because of any prejudice, for we have none, but our members will not sell to any minority because it'll hurt property values. This method gave them a, an argument, a way of imposing this discipline on other brokers who weren't members of the realtors and of convincing owners not to sell without them. And they adopted a code of ethics in 1924 that said, we'll expel any member from the business and we'll freeze out the business of anybody who violates that. This idea, this axiom, so accepted by every economist, became the tool when FHA was created in the middle of the, in the early depression. It was the realtors who were the key designers of it and the key lobbyists for it. It, they, it became, they viewed it as their branch of the federal government. They created its programs, which were incredibly successful for white Americans. Realtors in each city, three leading realtors in each city, drew up the bases of the redlining maps. Redlining maps was one of the rules, but requiring covenants was another. So you now had, if you fast forward, it's now 1939, and you're Herbert U. Nelson, who was the executive secretary of the Realtors National, and he's sitting in his office in Chicago. You have a system which is almost perfectly designed. You have racial covenants, 
in so many places. You have racial steering. You have the realtors created. Each real estate board would create uh, you know, their own committees to make certain, because they were expected by local officials and neighbors and homeowners to whom they had sold the idea that a single minority, a lawyer, a doctor, would ruin the neighborhood for everybody. This system was now being run by the federal government. So you now had a perfect system, in effect, to continue this forever. So by the late 40s, you have clearly segregated lines using all of these tools. But in 1948, uh, the courts took a look at these uh, covenants, and, they, and, and an argument was, these are perfectly legal by previous case law because this is just a private contract between two people. The government isn't imposing this and is not requiring it, and um, therefore there's no state action in civil rights law. But in 1948, the Supreme Courts changed that. What did they do, and did that change the situation on the ground? There are no... Spoiler alert. No, <laughs> it didn't change the situation on the ground. But let me give you the context, because again, it's about arguments. So it's World War II, and appraisers, some pushed by the NACP and so forth, start doing studies about these property values, and they find out it's bogus. It's not true, and for obvious reasons. People who are restricted and can't live in 95% of neighborhoods and 98% of new homes, they're winding up having to pay 20 to 30% more for the same quality unit. So if they pay a speculator to be a, a shill to help buy in a, in a white neighborhood and they're paying extra, prices tend, if anything, in two-thirds of the cases, went up, not down. But that was not part. And it turned out Luigi Laurenti at uh, UC Berkeley went back. He went back to every author of one of these textbooks. The textbook, the textbooks were taught at 165, 165 universities. And he said, can I see the studies? Turned out there was never a study. Mid-century America, our entire suburbs, were basically built on a lie. So, so this property value idea got discredited. So they couldn't use this anymore. And at the same time, you have millions of GIs coming back from a war that all the propaganda of from both parties, had been, this is a common war for freedom against racist dictatorships of Hitler and the, and the Japanese. And here are these people coming back. Some courts start saying, well, gee, maybe these covenants really are unconstitutional. This doesn't seem like Ameri you know, American. And President Truman appoints a, a civil, the first President's Committee on Civil Rights in response to an African-American veteran two hours out of the army, um, having his eyes put out on a bus in uh, uh, South Carolina. And not, you know, and nobody's prosecuted for this. And he creates a president's committee to figure out what to do about civil rights. He's fearing the KKK is going to come back like it did um, after World War I. And this president's committee says the biggest threat to American freedom is segregation, to the promise of American freedom, freedom meaning freedom for everybody, shared freedom. And they say it's the first recommendation, two recommendations, key recommendations that Truman can do himself. One is desegregate the armed forces. And the other is intervene in the case the NAACP is bringing against racial covenants in the Supreme Court. Supreme Court unanimously have to say only six members, because three of them recused themselves, presumably because they had racial covenants on their own home. The Supreme Court says, you know, 
for a court, it's one thing to have a private contract, but for the court to enforce racial covenants, that's government action. That violates the 14th Amendment. How do realtors respond? So you have to understand they've built up an entire system and a set of business practices and expectations among their clients as to this is what they're going to manage for them. So the Los Angeles board puts together drafts a U.S. constitutional amendment to overturn the 14th Amendment. And they approve it, and the California Realtors Association. And it would basically create apartheid. This is 1948, the same year it was apartheid was created in South Africa. Their lawyers say to them, you know what, don't, you don't need to do this. This is unnecessary. It's provocative. Um, it, it's, you know, you can do the same thing quietly. You can do it by racial steering, by simply making certain that nobody can work in real estate who does this. They use all sorts of methods. And if you just take the entire, from 1948 to 1960 as a single thing, this method is so effective, it intensifies segregation. In the entire decade, in the San Fernando Valley, 750,000 people, all the white areas, the Fair Housing Council there, of one black family that could buy a house. So you're, you're saying racial steering, meaning that the realtors will do what? Steer? If you come in, if you're a black family and you come in looking for a house, they'll say, oh, that sign you saw, that's already, that was just sold. Or they won't have the keys. Uh, the stories from the interviews of realtors from this era, I sort of you know, lay out in the book, um, endless stories of deception and so forth. But more important, any realtor, any broker, anybody who works in real estate who dares to even show a house to a minority is going to be frozen out of the business and is going to have to find another line of work. So segregation continues despite the fact that the uh, covenants have been declared unconstitutional or at least unenforceable. Um, so then we have actions on the political scene from the civil rights movement. Um, fair housing laws at both the state and the federal level. Um, in fact, California passes a fair housing law. How did the re realtors react? So these laws started getting passed around the country because precisely because segregation it remained so strong after the Supreme Court case, and here were the people who had pushed it, and they said, we have to do something, so let's pass a law saying there can't be private discrimination. Okay. Um, and they start passing these laws in a bunch of states. In a couple of states, because this is important, there wasn't, didn't have to be this way. Didn't have to be opposition. In Massachusetts and Colorado, the realtors, after some discussion, decided they could live with this, and they supported the law. In California, in most parts of the country, in Washington State, in Seattle, where this became an issue, in Tacoma, um, in Detroit and Chicago, virtually everywhere else in the country, the realtors decided they would adamantly oppose this. But they're losing in the legislatures, and they're losing in the legislatures for a very key, for an obvious reason, which is how we're now in the height of the civil rights movement. This is, we're talking 1963, okay? And King's speech at the March on Washington, the Civil Rights Act is, you know, going before Congress. Lyndon Johnson's about to be reelected by the largest, mar or elected by the largest margin in our history. How in that climate do you defend segregation? The realtors had used a line starting after World War II, when these returning GIs were, called f saying, it's freedom of association. We have the right, every race, and every race has the same right, 
but it's basically a part of America, part of a constitution, not part of the constitution, that we have the right, everybody has the right to live in a neighborhood just with people like them. Blacks have this right, Chinese have this right, Koreans have this right, whites have this right. So we have this right. But freedom of association comes out, it's been used by the diehard segregationists in the South, by Bull Connor and so forth, you know, um, fighting school segregation and fighting the end of Jim Crow. So it's discredited. You can't use it publicly. So what line do they use? So here they are. They decide to oppose this fair housing law in California by putting on the ballot a state constitutional amendment that says neither the state nor any city can ever limit the absolute discretion of any owner in renting or selling property or using a broker to do so. So does much does this wording sound like the Bill of Rights that when they put it on the ballot and pollsters canvass uh, African Americans in Watts, 65% of them say, well, that sounds like a good idea until they're told what it means. So they put this on the ballot, but their problem is they're politically isolated. The Chamber of Commerce, even their longtime ally, won't support them. No leading, no leading politician, not Ronald Reagan, not Barry Goldwater, will support them for fear of being seen as racist. So they decide to run this campaign, a massive you know, proposition campaign. You can imagine California, you see these today. This is Proposition 14. Proposition 14, 1964 ballot. And they cast this by redefining freedom to mean the opposite of what Martin Luther King has been speaking about and has been propelling the civil rights movement. That idea is of shared freedom, that the freedom of everyone depends on everyone else's. That's the political key to the engine of the entire civil rights movement. Spike Wilson, the head of the California Realtors, decides to turn that on its head. And he says, he redefines individual freedom. An individual freedom means an owner's absolute right to discriminate. This is the right, of course, realtors had spent 50 years, you know, uh, violating, if you will, with racial covenants, limiting owners' rights. But, but the important point was they redefined this idea. And they said, this is, we're, we're the ones who are colorblind. This is the invention of colorblind freedom that we've heard so much about over the last 30 years. They say, we're in favor of the same rights for everybody. Every owner should have the same equal right the right to discriminate. And we're the ones who are in favor of equal rights, not, not the civil rights people. That's one of their lines. The second line, they say, and this is a key, is that freedom is a zero sum. It's what you own. It's not doesn't belong to the country as a whole and belong to everybody collectively. It belongs to you separately. Your own property surrounded, in effect, like your own white picket fence that you can control. And this absolute individual right, this freedom of choice, they described, that was the words they used on freeway billboards, freedom of choice. Freedom of choice, they said, this is part of your individual dictates of conscience, your right to sell a property, not for the most money, but for who you can choose to be it. This idea of dictates of conscience ties it to freedom of religion, and they use this theme constantly. And why freedom of religion? Because it seems like something sacred that can't be violated. Unlike freedom of speech and freedom of the press, which have always been, um, you know, limited, right? Somebody can't have total freedom of speech in a crowded theater because it may affect other people's rights. 
what they're doing is elevating a single a right as being absolute. What you said at the beginning, Jay, which is anytime you define a right as absolute, it means somebody has no other. And so what the realtors had done is they had taken a narrow right of owners. Spike Wilson wrote this property owner bill of rights that was published by realtors all over the country with a picture of a patriot from 1776. And it announced the absolute rights of owners. There's never a word there about the right to buy a house or to live in a house in the first place. So if you, so the key to colorblind freedom, the key to all these ideas is what you exclude. This argument was so effective because what it said to millions of moderate whites who didn't want to see themselves as racially prejudiced was to be in favor of Proposition 14 didn't mean you were prejudiced at all. It meant you believed in and supported individual freedom. So here we are at an election in California. Civil rights movement is strong. Lyndon Johnson is crushing Barry Goldwater. Reagan doesn't support it. What happened? Johnson wins by 60% of the vote. On the same ballot, the realtors win by 65%. By 75% of the white vote, and politically maybe the most key of all, by 80% of the white union vote. It would have been the key to FDR, the FDR old democratic coalition. Split the coalition. And it, it showed, did you want to no. jump in? Okay. So it, so it showed, and this proposition, it would be ruled unconstitutional two years later. But what it said to conservatives around the country who have been devastated by gold orders defeat of the, of the 65 million votes in the election, 24 million went for gold order. 40%, and of those people were surveyed in um, you know, exit polls, only a quarter of them voted for him because he was a conservative. The rest simply because he was you know, national party leader. So you now have conservative movement on its heels. What do they do? Here's a message. Here's a way of talking about freedom that can be used on any issue. When it's declared unconstitutional, the moment it's declared unconstitutional, Ronald Reagan, who's running for governor of California, says, dips his feet in the water and says, you know, this is, this is these justices of the court who are violating the popular will. And then he starts adopting the realtor's language, saying, if an individual wants to uh, discriminate against a Negro or others in uh, selling or renting his house, it's his right to do so. But he adopts it not merely for this for on this one issue, but it's a general way of talking about freedom and propels Reagan and the conservative movement. And it also pits the conservatives as the victims of aggressive government action to enforce this over their rights. Right. Remember, they portrayed themselves as if discrimination is a matter of individual choice. You can see from everything I've described, discrimination and segregation was the result of organization. But they're picturing now, they're saying, we're not the enemies of minorities. Spike Wilson says, am I anti-Negro? By God, I am not. I am their champion. This is his quote. The enemy, the people to oppose, is government trying to extend rights for others. Because what isn't freedom, if you define freedom very narrowly, think about it in vaccines and mandates, or guns or anything else. If you define freedom very narrowly, it's this narrow right. Everything else, the right to buy a home in the first place, becomes what the realtors called it, a special privilege, a social privilege. Nobody has the right to own a home. 
this notion, and it's, this is special privileges for special groups. So you can hear much of the rhetoric we're hearing now. Why did this become so successful? I think this is really the key. Why has this reshaped the country for the last 50 years, this idea? I think there are three reasons. One is, the time conservatives were divided between libertarians and social conservatives, you know, school prayer and so forth, and traditions. Here was a use of libertarian language, the language of absolute individual freedom, as a way to enforce community tradition, community conformity, the exact opposite of libertarianism. But it used this idea, and this rhetoric perfectly united the conservative movement on every issue. This idea of absolute freedom for a single narrow right could be used on every issue. So the more issues it was used on, on guns, on you know, making the Second Amendment mean what it meant, on abortion, everything else, you may think of these all as separate issues that would sort of fragment a movement. But because it was the same message that government is taking away the freedom of ordinary Americans, your absolute right, it unified the movement because the message was the same constantly, and so it reinforced that. The third reason, and so it created a transcendent reason beyond ordinary politics to split the, you know, for working class white Americans to be against liberal government. And the third reason, and this is sort of the one that really brings us to today, is it created a new ideology for what was a new Republican Party. The Republican Party in 1964, 80% of the congressmen voted for the Civil Rights Act and then for the Voting Rights Act. And they were seen as really no different by you know, this era from, from Democrats. The idea of a Republican Party, what became today's Republican Party, was born by Charles Wallace Collins, who was a, um, a Southern uh, bank, banking lawyer and a racist. In 1947, when Truman's committee got appointed, he could see the handwriting on the wall. He said, the National Democratic Party and the National Republican Party, they're going to compete for the votes, for the votes of, of uh, African Americans in big cities. The only way to preserve Jim Crow is for Southern Democrats to leave the National Democratic Party and create an alliance with those Northern Republicans who will join them in a common alliance with two messages. Restrict the federal government from regulating business and from regulating civil rights. This led to the Dixiecrat Rebellion in 1948 when Strom Thurmond ran outside the Democratic Party. But in 1964, after Goldwater won five southern states, when Strom Thurmond joined the Republican Party, such a party was now possible. This was a new idea, a national conservative party, something that didn't exist. But it needed an ideology that could work both in the North and in the South. The realtors had been forced, because they were working in California, a liberal moderate state, to use language of colorblind freedom that could work anywhere. If it could work in California, it could they could win elections anywhere. So it created an idea, together with this notion of uniting the conservative movement, that could shift the country to the right for the next 50 years. Before we go too far and talk yeah. about vaccines, I want to get back to housing for yes. a second. So here we are, um, 
with a populist notion, a libertarian notion that actually supports segregation in a way. We've got it on the ground, even though a lot of the legal issues um, are, are going against it. What's the future for desegregating our communities? So the key thing to understand is federal fair housing law got passed in April 1968, three days after Martin Luther King was assassinated, with fires burning in 100 cities and troops out guarding the Capitol. It was like the final victory of the civil rights movement. But it was a victory that was shadowed by Proposition 14, because every congressman knew from this California vote how popular the realtor's argument had been, the one they kept trying to make around the country. So the law was weakened. It had no administrative enforcement mechanism. It was un largely unfunded. And it's remained weak ever since. And part of the reason segregation remains, this is sort of, you know, I think the biggest picture here, the biggest takeaway in terms of segregation today, is it would have taken strong government action to have overcome the legacy the realtors left behind, fragmented suburbs that were divided, created precisely with single family zoning, I haven't talked about, that was invented to support racial covenants. Um, with a history of discrimination, um, with individual pressures. All these things were created. It would have taken strong government action to reverse that. But at every point along the way, efforts to do so have been attacked by using this language of freedom. When um, uh, 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 fair housing law has a mandate to affirmatively further fair housing, the government program should go to communities they should be assessed on whether they're supporting integration. When George Romney, Nixon's uh, Secretary of Housing, sort of took this seriously in 1970, Lincoln quashed this by saying, segregation is the result of individual choice of majority and minority individuals, the realtor's language. When Reagan became president, his Attorney General, William French Smith, had been the realtor's lawyer on Proposition 14. They basically dramatically reduced enforcement of fair housing. Um, in 2020, after the Obama administration had tried to publish again this firm for housing, the Trump administration said, we're going to defend the suburbs against low-income housing. So fair housing has always been a target. And so if you ask what can be done, at one level, there's specific things. For example, if realtors who still often engage informally, I mean, the official position of realtors is very much in favor of fair housing. But in every study you see at individual real estate agents, appraisers, lenders turning down African Americans for loans at twice the rate of whites with the same credit scores, there's individual discrimination. If the penalties for that was you lose your license, and you lose your license as a federal regulated institution, that would make a difference at the individual level. But at this broader level, dealing with zoning and dealing with communities, it's this issue, it's the, it's the power of this idea of freedom and its power in our politics and what it's led to that makes it so hard. So I'd like to open it up to some questions. I have some more if we don't have enough, but um, there's a very good question floating around, and that is, can you address segregation with respect to multifamily housing? And especially how that relates to zoning and probably packing in um, into smaller areas, multifamily housing, and I guess raising the cost as a result. Yeah, so 
just a little background. So the first idea of single-family zoning, was, again, it was the realtors who promoted zoning in the first place. And the first idea of it, of single-family zoning, was created by the same Duncan McDuffie, who created Covenants in Berkeley in 1916. He wanted to protect the area around his subdivisions. He built homes, by the way, for 35,000 Californians, all of which were racial, racially restricted. Um, he wanted to protect this against an, what he called a Negro dance hall that might get built nearby. He created single-family zoning. That was the first model of single-family zoning, and its history comes out of that history. So single-family zoning has been used as a tool of racial segregation. Um, it was actually in Massachusetts, sort of, you know, overturning, I, I didn't realize this, in the 1920s when they passed zoning, they require a two-thirds vote to overturn single-family zoning. They changed that. So there's a, a big battle going on about that. And to give you a flavor of how this idea of freedom affects us, in 2015, uh, Mario Rubio and other, other Republicans introduced a bill that would basically say to end this mandate under fair housing and say there's a freedom of community choice, a freedom to zone. So freedom meaning the right to exclude. So this is an ongoing battle at every level of our government. And multifamily? Well, that's what multifamily is about, being able to have something other than single-family zoning. You know, I think it's interesting. I don't know if you're aware of it, but there is a relatively hot political issue in Seattle because of our need for additional housing, primarily multifamily. And we're zoned a high percentage of Seattle as single-family. And a real issue of whether we should push back on that to change it. And you could argue that it has racial overtones, for sure. It probably was developed out of that. But now it's about mixed income and providing housing, given our housing crisis. I mean, there are lots of issues here. We're dealing with an affordability crisis. The notion is, how can one take a collective view of an entire metropolitan area as opposed to the fragmented view of individual suburbs that were created? So it isn't like there's a single right answer to this. But the notion of balancing all these needs is sort of the same notion of balancing the rights of everybody. So let's go back to your definition of freedom or two definitions of freedom. Do you see a route forward to uh, basically rationalize the two? Or are we in conflict in the zero-sum game inevitably? Part of the problem, uh, two problems, that, you know, in 19, at the March on Washington, when Martin Luther King spoke, he used the word equality once and freedom 20 times. And since then, since conservatives have adopted this language of freedom, Liberals and progressives largely abandoned freedom as their issue. And so during the last election, it's the Republicans who say, only people who vote for us are the only freedom-loving Americans. So it's, and part of this came out of viewing this language of freedom as purely, you know, it's just a cover for racism, but not realizing how powerful it is, and how important it is, how it gets so many working class, white working-class Americans to vote against their own economic interests or their own health. Um, in its name as a sacred value. Unless you combat this idea of freedom, it remains and reinforces itself. And so to me, and part of the problem is there's just one word, right? Freedom. And so American, you know, you survey people from 
they cross the entire political spectrum. Everybody will, people who disagree on nothing, will agree that freedom is the country's highest value. And you sort of therefore implicitly assume that what Ronald Reagan meant by it, go to Donald Trump, what Ronald Reagan meant by it was roughly the same as Jimmy Carter or maybe Joe Biden. It's the same basic idea from the Declaration. The whole story of my book is really that it's not the same idea. That here's an opposite idea that was deliberately created to oppose the civil rights movement, to oppose extension of civil rights. And so we're dealing with what Lincoln called during the Civil War, two mutually incompatible ideas of freedom. And to me, the first step in dealing with that is to call these by opposite names. The ones I would use are exclusive freedom, meaning the absolute freedom of some that doesn't depend on what happens to others, and inclusive freedom, which means the freedom that belongs to the country that inherently belongs to all. And by constantly calling out and saying, Oh, you're talking about freedom on abortion. You're talking about you're talking about exclusive freedom. We're talking about inclusive freedom. So I think, to me, it making realizing where these ideas came from. That one of them came out of segregation, and was deliberately designed this way. Understanding its elements, what are the features that make it work, and naming it is like in a really important step. And reclaiming the idea of freedom for those who believe it belongs to all. And so in the context of vaccinations, uh, the freedom to uh, not be vaccinated, to protect your body, you would say is an, is an excluding or exclusive freedom. Um, it, it's the idea. Exclusion means it's fundamentally based on this idea of there's an absolute right that's your personal right that's a zero sum that doesn't depend on what happens to anybody else. So to understand what's going on in the country today, this is my perception of why vaccines and masks have become such an issue. The conservative movement and the Republican Party that's wedded itself to it have become so dependent on this idea as the fundamental idea to drive everything that they can't unwed themselves from it. And so you see um, DeSantis in Florida um, going against the most basic conservative principles of school, you know, of local school control, or of businesses being able to decide on their customers and their workers. He's violating those rules because he's launched his entire political campaign on this side that the left is coming to take your freedom. So when it comes to mass mandates, he has to view it through that lens. He doesn't have, it isn't like he has some choice. When Abbott comes out against you know, mask mandates in schools in Texas, it's because he adopted mandates a year ago and he's being attacked on the right by challengers who are attacking him for violating American freedom. In Michael Wolf's new book about Trump, when his advisors a year ago, are, or what is it, a year, year and a half ago now, are told that politically it would be wise for him to support mask mandates because it'll reduce vaccinations, it'll, I mean, reduce, um, uh, the epidemic and will allow jobs to come back, he says it would be off-brand. So what you have is an entire party that to violate this credo would be off-brand. The, the dynamics of this party over 50 years have inherently been toward only, toward only those people who will make this definition of freedom the only definition.
like, you know, it's, it's easy for people on the left to think these people are crazy or why are they adopting these things? They don't have a choice. They've, they've, they've trapped themselves. I don't know if trapped is the right word. They've put themselves in a position in which this is the only issue. So we're looking for more questions if people have it. Um, otherwise, how do you see them working their way out of this trap? You don't have to give them advice, but I'm just curious how, how you think this might uh, turn out. I mean, I think, they'll, well, part of what's happening is, and you can see it, I mean, in the last year, uh, you know, you know, between January 6th and the mask mandates and the vaccines, more and more, this notion has, is an irreconcil it's irre it irreconcilably divides us. And that was its purpose. The purpose of this idea of freedom was to cement divisions, originally racial divisions and real estate, but it's to cement divisions. Using freedom this way can only do that. It can only reinforce divisions and make them irreconcilable and make them seem that to do anything else would be to violate a sacred principle. So, so I think we're on a path toward making these things irreconcilable, and the only way to to respond to it is to recognize it for what it is and respond to it in terms of freedom itself. So if it is irreconcilable and in conflict, then someone is calculating that there are enough votes on the one side as opposed to the other. Or that if you don't have enough votes that you can limit other people's voting rights. I mean, it, it threat this idea of this idea of freedom being so important, it inherently overrides democracy. Because it's, it's based on the idea that freedom belongs to those people who deserve it the most. For the realtors, it was the people who happened to own houses at that time, who by definition, since the realtors kept blacks from buying houses, were only white people. But it's the idea that freedom really belongs to some people, that they deserve it. And that's what it's the issue. There's a really wonderful question uh, out there. You have laid a lot of culpability on realtors. I'd say that's an understatement. <laughs> How have they received your book? Well, I haven't heard. Um, um, I did get photo. No, no, no. Well, first of all, look, in 1968, after the Fair Housing Act was passed and after another Supreme Court case, the realtors announced in their publication, they gave advice to all their members. They said, um, we have to stop. We can't continue arguing this. They said the Supreme Court decision particularly is so definitive uh, against housing discrimination that we can't do this anymore. And they said, sort of laid bare all their arguments about colorblind freedom. They said, the Negro as of today is a free man when it comes to real estate. And they changed the name of all their associations, all their organizations. Now the National Association of Realtors was called National Association of Real Estate Boards before that. They changed it, and on their official letterhead it says, we acknowledge the past, we acknowledge this history. And they've kept all their archives. I spent two days at their archives, you know, going through the, the files. They've kept all this. They acknowledge this past. They're very publicly on record in favor of fair housing. Um, I don't know, you know, I don't know how they'll react to my book. Well, I think... Um I've enjoyed it a lot, and I hope everyone else has. And I think with that, we'll call it evening. And thank you all for joining. The book is 
Freedom to Discriminate, How Realtors Conspire to Segregate Housing and Divide America by Gene Slater. Thank you very much, Gene.